0: Didn't test the Spirit yet. All right, so let's just go, um, let's see, let's go to the last verse of chapter 3, verse 24. Uh, okay. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. So the back and forthness. Uh, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Okay, okay. Uh, do you have any, any comments or questions about that love one another section? You all okay there? <laughs> he really only got through the end of chapter three. <laughs> okay, all right, well, let's finish, let's try to finish the last two chapters then. I know, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Tattoos? <laughs> There's actually a tattoo artist coming across the street. (coughs) Noon, if you want something. I love Jack. Jack's the man. Something like that. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, let's go to Chapter 4, then. Um, The Spirit of God and the Spirits of the Antichrist. So, test the spirits. Beloved. And the Greek word there is agape, so those who are loved with a Christ-like love, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Hmm. For many false prophets have gone out. What do they do with the false prophet in the ancient world, do you remember? Yeah, exactly. So uh, think about all the people on TV today. And who say they're prophets? And then their prophecies don't come true. In, in the Old Testament, they wouldn't be alive tomorrow. Um, but today, they keep making money. So, uh, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, so what would be a test that you would put to the spirits to see if it's from God? Because he doesn't really tell you. Um, he doesn't really tell you. Well, he may—he does tell you further on, but just okay. So pretend you're not reading. Pretend you're hearing this as a sermon, because he doesn't. I mean, he tells you a little bit, but he doesn't give you the explicit ways to test it. So how would you, as a as a 21st-century Lutheran, how would you test the spirits? Good. So it would have to be Bible-based. What else? Yep. Yeah. Uh, prophets proclaimed lots of things, though, Mattie. You remember? they they you're right. A true prophet today would ultimately get to the person of Christ. So it's not just Bible-based. We are, we are Bible folks, but the Bible has a singular message, and the message is the person of Christ. Okay, So it would need to get to the person of Christ. But remember, prophecies also contain things like the prophecy of destruction. What's in the exactly. Um, or the prophecy of goodwill, what the Lord will do in the future. Okay. So uh, prophecy, broadly speaking, can be sort of anything forward-looking. Uh, what else would you use to test the spirits? Or give me an example. What would be a spirit today? That might be a better way to talk. What would be a spirit today? What would be a spirit that's not from God? Do you know of any? It's hard, isn't it? Yeah, there, there are lots of them. <laughs> yeah. Rob Bell? Started, yeah. Saying the right, all yeah. The right good, 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 good. Okay, so test the spirit. So the way you would test that then is you would take um, somebody like Rob Bell and you would uh, take what he said and sort of put that next to Scripture and see if it all lines up. Now, what's the trouble? The trouble is um, Scripture doesn't address specifically every problem we face today, right? I mean, and, uh, and you have to take that. And, What I mean by that is not that scripture isn't sufficient. What I mean is the troubles we face today are in some sense or can be very different than the troubles the scriptures are written towards. So at some point, you may get to a question and say, okay, does this line up with scripture? And you won't find the answer in scripture. doesn't mean it's untrue. It just means scripture is not um, the answer to a math problem. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so how do we Good question. Um, Rob Bell is an interesting one because that's sort of a one-off um, in some sense. Rob Bell's new book is called Love Wins. Um, and his, I mean, um, Rob Bell is very different than a televangelist. Um, televangelists are a dime a dozen. Um, he's very smart. Yes, yeah. It's very good, good. yeah. Yeah. So what I mean by that is he's, yeah, he's a one-off in the sense that he knows his stuff, um, and he's been very successful, and I mean successful in the best possible sense of the term. I don't mean like he's made a ton of money. I mean he's been successful in bringing young people back to the church in a very ancient way. So he's, he's one of sort of the founders of this idea of the emergent church, which is, anybody know about the emergent church? You know anything about this? A little bit? The emergent church is basically, it takes all of the principles of the ancient church, so I mean liturgy and mystery and smoke and icons and candles, everything you can imagine in the early church, and applies it to the world today. Part of the trouble is, the emergent church, um, in Lutheranism, there are two sides to the Lutheran coin. One side is doctrine, what we believe. And the other side is practice, how we believe it, okay? And this is the Latin phrase, "lex orande, lex credendi. What you believe, uh, the law of belief is the law of prayer. So you can't say, in Lutheran circles, there was once a bu- book published called um, Lutheran Substance Evangelical Style. And what it proposed was, what you believed could be separated from how you worship. So as long as you believe all the Lutheran stuff, you can worship like a Baptist. It doesn't matter. And so then from that book, you have many contemporary churches today. And if you ask a pastor of a church that's very contemporary, um, what do you believe? He'd say, I believe all the Lutheran stuff. Why do you worship this way? Because worship is different from belief. I believe like a Lutheran. I worship like an evangelical. Well, what we found is that actually isn't true. How you worship should reflect what you believe. Um, So so Lutherans then typically would say, because we believe these things, the liturgy is important, God gave the liturgy in scripture, we then practice that liturgy in real time. A guy like Rob Bell, or the Emergent Church, would say, um, practice is sort of uh, P-R-A-C-T-I-C-E. Practice is sort of the key, and his practice would be to buy markers that work his practice would be a very ancient practice. So when you go into a, an emergent church, none of you have ever been to one? Never seen this before? It's very There's there's actually a couple Lutheran churches that are like this, and I know the guys very well. Um, they're great guys, but um, they're great guys because they buy markers that work right? uh, there. No okay. Test the markers to see if they're from God. Yeah, there's one out, uh, I, uh, no, there's one that's called, um, gosh, I know the, the pastor's name is Chris James, young guy. Uh, he actually did his doctor of ministry on um, the adult catechumenate, how, how Christians were formed in the first three centuries, or fourth, four centuries. But what the church often looked like is you go in. And it's filled with incense, and there's oftentimes like Gregorian chant. It's very ancient. You'd walk in and say, wow, this is sort of more than what even we do at St. John. But there's no, there's no real formal structure behind it. So if you want to go and um, play in the baptismal water for a little while, that's fine. If you want to go to a pastor for confession at some point, that's fine. If you want to go and hear a short sermon, that's fine. You just sort of move around the room. Um, But it incorporates all these ancient things. So what it's done is, if you've been here on Sunday mornings, Pastor Brusick's talked about postmodernism for a couple weeks. What it does is it appeals to a postmodern culture that's interested in what? What are postmoderns interested in? Beauty, Beauty, spirituality, community, justice. Now, those are sort of our taglines from N.T. Wright, but now parse that for me. What does that look like? What are they really interested in? Mystery? What else? Yeah, something bigger than themselves, authenticity, ancient, right? Um, something that creates a sense of awe. And the Emergent Church has cashed in on this, um, because that's what their services look like. What they don't have is a real doctrinal structure behind it like Lutherans do. Okay, So it's sort of how you practice is the most important, not really what you believe, whereas Lutherans for a long time said what you believe is most important, not how you practice. The real Lutheran way is to say what you believe and what you practice are both important. That makes sense? It's sort of the other extreme of the Lutheran, the old Lutheran way. So you have charismatic contemporary churches. That's one way. What you practice is, uh, I'm sorry, what you believe and what you practice shouldn't have to match. There's the Rob Bell Emergent Church way, which says practice is most important. There's the real Lutheran way, which says practice and worship go together. Uh, I'll I'll be honest with you. Um, I've seen some reviews of Rob Bell's book. It just came out, so I don't even know if I mean it's not like yeah. So I don't even know if you can get. I mean, you could probably order it from Amazon or something. Um, I don't know from some of the reviews I've read if he actually denies the existence of hell as vehemently as people say he does. Basically, the critique of Rob Bell is he said there is no hell. God loves everybody. Everybody's going to heaven. Yes, Yep. which is the biblical way. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, right? So heaven is not some sort of abstract, you know, you're above the clouds. Heaven will be here when God recreates the earth. Um, So in that sense, he's right. He's also very right in the sense that with God, love does always win. Although sometimes, and I don't know if he says this, God loves you by letting you have what you want. So the colic, and this is it always stuns me, this collect comes up once a year. The collect for Lent 3 says, Oh God, um, what does it say? Who's what? You write it every day. Oh God, whose glory it is always to have mercy. So God's nature, who he is, is not someone who wants to send people to hell. His nature, what defines him, is someone who wants to have mercy and have all of his children home again. That's what I think Rob Bell is saying. And in that sense, Rob Bell is right. Now, if this got to the district president, he would say, why did you say that publicly? Well, partly, nobody's read Rob Bell's book because it's not come out yet. So nobody can say he's wrong until they've read the book. (laughs) What I've seen excerpts of it, that's what he says, which is, love always wins because God has mercy. Shoot, the world needs more of that. So... Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly, so in some sense, he's given us a great gift, which is he's turned young people back to things that are ancient, mysterious, dark, wonderful, old, bigger than themselves, and at the same time, he's given hope to a world that says, all hell is breaking loose, Japan has fallen off the map, you know, Haiti still has malaria and all these, and, you know, there's war all over the place, and Rob Bell says, but love wins, that's actually not a bad message. Yep. Yep. Well, that w- that would be the difference then you have to ask yourself where you're at spiritually. Um, There are certain things that are helpful or beneficial for someone who is spiritually mature. Someone who is spiritually mature can read a book like that and say, what are all the good things contained herein? Someone who is spiritually immature, what's often their read of the book? They'll read it and believe everything. (laughs) This is why St. Paul says you've got to be discerning, right? So you're someone that could read the book and say, okay, about 92% of this is pretty good. There's about 8% that isn't good. But you know, we ought to be doing the same thing with every book we read. By Lutherans too. Mm-hmm. Doctrinal review at CPH doesn't mean it's, you know, completely true always. So you got to read the books and say what's true, what's not, what's you need to have a worldview that's defined by Christ and scripture. And I would say primarily by Jesus. Scripture doesn't trump Jesus. Jesus trumps scripture. So it's defined by Jesus. And if you read Rob Bell's book that way, you might find some very helpful things in there. But that would be a way to test the spirits. Okay? Um the vicar and I talk about this every once in a while. It's very hard as a pastor to go listen to other guys' sermons, even other Missouri Synod sermons. Because what what do you often do? You critique, critique everything. Uh-huh. I can't believe he said that. He shouldn't have said that. He really should wrap it up now. I can't. So at some point it's nice to take a break from testing the spirits. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but yes, and you can say and this is the this is the point of the text. Testing the spirits is not limited to everyone outside of your denomination. It's not like we say everybody in the Missouri Synod is fine. Everybody outside needs to be tested. You know, it means testing the spirits all the time, even in your own parish. This is what the Bereans were so helpful with. The Bereans didn't go and say, I'm a Berean, so Paul, you do what I say. They went and said, it said the Berean, he loved the Bereans because they tested everything he said by Scripture. Right? They listened to him. They processed. They read the text. They said, "Okay, that's good." Um, I told the joy group on Wednesday, "One, you know, this is this is an example of testing the spirits." There's a a local Missouri Center church where the pastors change the words of institution to whatever he wants. That's an example of some place where you need to test the spirits, because that's not that's not of the spirit of God. That's not of Christ. So it's even in our own church body. We have got to figure all that out. Makes sense. Okay. Yes, very much so, because you have to ask whatever you do, is it of God or is it of some other spirit? And and the, the struggle is sometimes those two spirits are at war within you. This is why Luther says you're simul justus et peccator. You're simultaneously justified and simultaneously a saint. So you've got this justified spirit of God in you, the Holy Spirit, and at the same time the spirit of your flesh, the spirit of your own will, the spirit of the world is at war against that. But I will tell you this. There's only room for inside of you for one spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit. So you can be bombarded by external spirits, but it's, the Holy Spirit doesn't share residence with anybody. This isn't a double occupancy suite. Single occupancy, it's the spirit. Um, yes, you may pay more than double price. But so don't. you shouldn't go home at night and say, oh my gosh, do I have the Holy Spirit or not? This is why Luther, Luther was Part of the reason Luther um, is so agitated, and if you read him, you can tell this, especially in the middle of his career, is because Luther had personality struggles. He was depressed. He felt like he was always a sinner and could never be forgiven. And Luther had this very same struggle, which was every day he woke up and said, do I have the Holy Spirit or not? And finally, he came to the conclusion that's the wrong question. Mm -hmm. The right question is, I've been baptized. What does Christ want me to do? Which is very different than waking up and being tormented by whether or not you got the Holy Spirit. That's what people do who don't have the tangible promise, baptism, Eucharist, absolution, that the Holy Spirit's always with them. Luther, remember Luther said, it's not I've been baptized, past tense, I no. am baptized, right? Tangibly. And that really is one of the joys of being a sacramental Christian. If you're not sacramental, you miss out on tangible touches. Right? It's always about you and Jesus getting through life together. And if it's just you and Jesus, you know Jesus is perfect and you know you're not. <laughs> life is hell. Mm-hmm. But if you have tangible touches, Eucharist, baptism, absolution, all these sorts of things, um, the promise is reiterated. I am baptized. I am suffered. I'm forgiven. Make sense? Yes? No. No, not at all. But it, doesn't, it also doesn't mean you have a demon. Yeah. So it's, it's, you're right. It's the, two, it's, it's the Lutheran question. You don't have a demon. You've got the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean you're perfect. <laughs> uh, so, but as you, well, yeah, Norman Nagel once said, he's baptized your brain. So figure stuff out, exactly. <laughs> Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. So now he's going to tell you what the Spirit of God looks like. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, I mean put that put that in put that in different terms. Every spirit that confesses that Christ was incarnate is from God. Which means that what? The spirit of God is first and foremost incarnational. And if you're incarnational, if Christ came in the flesh, what else are you? Human, good. You give me another church term. You're being too worldly for me, Jan. If you believe that Christ is incarnation, what else do you believe? If he came in the flesh, he continues to come in the flesh, which means what? You are? Starts with an S, ends with an acramental. Sacramental. This is just two sides of the same coin. This is the Jesus coin. He came in the flesh once in Mary. But he continues to come in the flesh all the time. This is what the church has called the ongoing incarnational life. It's his sacramental life. The only difference is Jesus doesn't come as a little baby anymore. He comes all grown up, but he comes to you just like he did to Mary. So it says here, and this is fascinating, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that confesses the incarnation of Christ is from God. Now play that out to its logical conclusion. Every spirit that confesses the sacramental presence of Christ is from God. If you deny the sacraments, that spirit is not from God. That's what it says in the text. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. So there's your answer, Carol, your answer about the struggle. It's a struggle, but at the end of the day, the battle's been won. The strife is over, the battle done, right? The great Easter hymn. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So they're not both in you. One is in the world. One is in you. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So he now, he now gives you another, another way of defining this. The spirit of God is the spirit of truth. The spirit of Antichrist is the spirit of error, which is a fancy way of saying the spirit of lie, right? And truth is this, incarnation and sacrament. This is why we often say, you know, denominations, it's funny, denominations mean a lot to people of a certain demographic, they don't mean a lot to young people necessarily. And I think that's got negatives and positives. The negative is they just sort of float around and find a spot, and they're not ever defined by a church's confession. The positive is denominations are not the way the Lord set up the church. And at some point, and we often say this, at some point, it may be 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, although I think it's closer than it was, I think it's a lot closer than it was even 10 years ago, at some point, the church will be divided up into sacramental people and non-sacramental. Which, as you saw in the text, is really divided into those from God and those not from God. Okay? Those from God and those not from God. Now, what you shouldn't hear in all of this is that if you have, you know, non-sacramental friends, relatives, siblings, kids, that somehow they're not from God. It's here's the thing: um, these are these are errors that um, that can still be overcome. It doesn't mean they're right, but it also doesn't mean that they're all going to hell. I had a grandmother who was a Methodist. Um, you know, she. I don't know if she ever had the Eucharist in her life. I don't know. I mean, I know she went, but who knows if it was a Eucharist for all sorts of reasons? That doesn't mean she's in hell, because ultimately, he who believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. But in real time, this is how the church gets divided up. So, peop- so this is this proves the point: love wins. Even those who are of non-sacramental backgrounds, of what the text calls the spirits of the world, are still in heaven, right? So love does win. Rob Bell was right, right? Yes. Oh yes. Yeah, that's right. Yep, that's right. Oh, exactly right. It has to be. It has to be the Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah, because Jesus says, "I am the truth." Yeah. That makes sense, though. I mean, this is—it's amazing. I had not seen this in the text before, but it's amazing that the way. St. John divvies up the church is by those who are incarnational and those who are not, right? No, right. oh, exactly right. Yeah, ever the fall was the moment of the appearance of the Antichrist. So we're, living with it every day. we're living with it every day. He is. Yeah, I mean Revelation is just. It's it's sort of. Um, uh, the, the church fathers use two terms to describe it. One would be. Well, I'll give you the one term they use. It's very helpful. recirculation. What they mean by that is everything that unfolded in Genesis is actually put back together almost piece by piece in Revelation or in script, just in the rest of Scripture. So one example, I'll give you the, sort of their chief example. How did Eve fall into temptation? Specifically? How was it? You remember? Yeah, the serpent was a fallen angel and what did the serpent do? Did he just like give her a piece of fruit? Yeah, how did he do that? Keep going. Talk to her, her, right? Then what do you have with Mary? A heavenly angel comes and speaks to Mary. It's It's a putting back together of what fell in Eden. So they would say, he doesn't just fix it, but he puts it back together piece by piece. So if it was an angel who came to Eve, an angel will go to Mary, right? If the Antichrist appeared in Eden, he'll be forever put out in the new Eden. And so that's that's a picture. You have. So is there a time in Revelation where the Antichrist will finally appear and be destroyed? Yeah, there may be, but we don't we don't sort of wait in expectation of that, because the Antichrist is here, is here, yeah. And is there one Antichrist or many? There are many, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And in fact, even very good Christians can sometimes act in an Antichrist way, or do the work of the Antichrist. Fix the problem with the problem. Yep, exactly. I don't remember either. <laughs> well, I, I thought about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, SMP. Yeah, Sounds like that. a disease. Yeah, yeah exactly. Give it know, an SMP, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're real it's not problem. good, not good. I mean, and it's very prevalent in Europe. Agreed, yeah. And I think part of the struggle is the same struggle you've just identified with other church bodies, which is when we engage Muslim or jewish folks or you know pick pick whatever it may be we often don't look for common ground we often exactly and it's the same thing with other christians so first thing you do is you start with other christians and you say where's our common ground you have lots of common ground with sacramental christians because this is the uh, this is the mark of of christ so you start with common ground you say what can we do from here it's the same thing however with non-christians you look at muslims and say what's our common ground or or jews you know what's our common ground we have the same father in the faith mm-hmm. and we are we're brothers got Abraham, exactly um and so so where can we go from there and realize that all those things are starting points unfortunately um, as lutherans in our dna sometimes we're trained to fight and not to find common ground well, and the other inter- rampants yep in Europe. exactly yeah so that's the thing so don't You can't fear the Antichrist like you don't talk, you don't engage it, but you engage it and you see how you can sort of push through it. Okay? Keep going. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Okay? So, beloved... You know, Let us have agape for one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, when he says love is from God, that's a reference to sort of God's emotion and God's action. He loves us, but it's also a reference to a person. Here he's referring also to the person of Jesus. Jesus is love. He's the embodiment of love. So whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, which... So then what's the negative side? If you don't love, you're not, you're not of God. Right, right, exactly. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And right there, I mean, let's just see. Beloved love, two, three, four, five, six. Six uses of the word seven, if you look at verse nine, eight. You know, agape is all over the place right there. I mean, he's trying to make the point. I said, I think I said to the joy group, we are talking about, words and vocal and, you know, voice. You know, when you repeat things, even in a sermon, if you repeat things, there's a reason for that. You're trying to make a point. I mean, the fact that he uses love here eight or nine times, what's the point? Love is everything. Yeah, exactly. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That's just a fancy way of saying it was made incarnate among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through Him. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to stand in our place. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So you have a lot going on there. First thing you know is, God loves you, but what does God desire of your love? That you love someone else. Okay, you love someone else. Now, how in loving someone else are you actually returning love to God? It might be what Jesus says in Matthew 25, if you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Okay? This is this gets back we talked at Galatians and James all about this when we did this a couple of years back. God doesn't desire your love simply back to him. God desires your love this way, why? Because God is in all of these people. And he's especially in the least. I've said in a sermon once, he's in the little the little the last the least the lost and the dead, right? So um, in loving others, you actually are returning love to God. God doesn't need your love, but others do. Go ahead. Right, exactly. That's exactly right. Love is sort of, it's hard to talk about love. What are, what are, what are the ways in which people often talk about love? It's abstract, so you can't see it, touch it, taste it, hear it, smell it. What's the other way people talk about love? It's an emotion. It's an emotion. It's an emotion. Say that again? Exactly. And it's sacramental because, as it says in the text, God's love was made manifest. So it actually takes on flesh and bones and walks this earth. But that person has departed. So how do people now know the love of God? It says here, no one has ever seen God. So how do you know the love of God? Sometimes the only contact people will ever have with God is through the love shown to them by someone else. Right? And so love is more than something abstract. It's more than an emotion. If someone will only see God in your love toward them, that means love is action, right? Love is action. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is why the post-communion collect is so wonderful. Strengthen us in true faith toward thee and in fervent love toward one another. Um, I was actually, yeah, it does. The Greek word, the root is tetelestai, which is the word Jesus uses on the cross when he says it is finished. Tetelestai, tetelestai, it is finished. So it means, uh, so the text says God abides in us and his love is completed in us. But if How it's complete. Like uh, the- yeah. Yeah, exactly. The only way his love is completed in you is if you're showing love to someone else. If you're not, then God's love is not fully finished, right? It hasn't come to its end. Although the word finished in the Greek doesn't mean it's finished like it's stopped, don't do it anymore. It means it's completed and now it carries on in completion. Okay, so you don't say I've got full blast love of God. Well, now I've only got half blast love of God. It's full blast and once it's full blast, it's always full blast. That makes sense. Verse thirteen: By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us. I mean, all he's doing is just repeating himself here, because he has given us of his Spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. It's already, right there, just in case you, you know, he doesn't want you to be, um, he doesn't want you only to recognize the Father. Or only the Son, and we're not Pentecostals, so it's not just all about the Spirit. In one verse, He's given you all three persons, although the center of the Trinity is always the Son. And so then when it says the Spirit has been given by the Son, it says that in that verse, right? Doesn't it say right there, the Son gives us the Spirit? Yeah, because He has been because He has given us of His Spirit. He has given us of his spirit where does he give of his spirit primarily was in his most gruesome fleshly moment on the cross what's the last thing he says before tetelestai it is finished he breathed his last and gave up the gave up the ghost okay so on the cross when jesus finishes salvation he also gives you the real pentecost Pentecost. The primary Pentecost is not in Acts 2 or Acts 1 or wherever it happens. The primary Pentecost is when Jesus has his hands outstretched on the cross and it says, and he gave up the ghost. He doesn't just give up the ghost. He gives up the ghost and he gives it to you. Okay? If you come on Good Friday, when we read that text at night, uh, the classic Lutheran practice has been when you read, and he gave up the spirit, there's a long extended pause there, almost a minute of silence. And actually, you're supposed to go down on one knee. Why would you do that at that point? Because that's this text. That's this text. He gave up the spirit. He doesn't just give it up. He's not wasteful. He gives it to you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'll I'll send the paraclete, the comforter, right? Verse 15 now. So if you have the spirit, now what does that look like? Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So he's given you here now throughout chapter 4 um, all of these marks of what it means to be a Christian. One of the things he said How do you know you have God abiding in you? You love. What else? You confess. Who do you confess? The Son. From this part, what do you believe? Incarnation. Sacramental. This is very interesting. Well, I'm just, there's there's a progression here in God abiding in you. Um, So he says in this, it's almost like he's working backwards. He says here in this verse, how do you know God abides in you? You confess. Okay? Now, what do you confess about God? He's given it to you earlier. What do you confess about God? That he sent his son into the world, into the flesh. So your confession is not just any confession. It's a confession of the incarnation. And... I'll put it next to it, the ongoing incarnation, which is just the sacramental. But if you confess the incarnation and the sacramental, your life has been changed, and what do you do? You love. See the progression here? You don't start with love and then say, oh, thank God I love people. I must believe in the incarnation. Therefore, I confess Jesus. Therefore, I have God abiding in me. This abiding works sort of from the inside out. God works this way, like this. Does does that make sense? I can see it, but I'm afraid I'm not saying it very clearly. Nobody's responding, which means it's very unclear. Am I being unclear, Ab? Now's the time where you need to say, shut up and move on. So what you're saying is I'm being repetitive. (laughs) I'm kidding. That's a kind way of saying it. No, I, I understand. No, because that's what I say to Emma. Say it back to me so I make sure you got it. Exactly, exactly. So what he's done is he's given you, he's given you um, the recipe for making a Christian backwards. Because the first thing he talks about is love. Then he talks about the incarnation. And then he says, okay, if you confess all of this, God abides in you, and you in Him. He's just giving it to you backwards. It's like it's like telling a bad joke. He tells you the punchline first. Exactly. So exactly exactly. So let God do the verbs first. Okay, that's the Lutheran way. God does the verbs. So God says, "If you confess Me, I abide in you, and you in Me." But you have to say, "What does it mean to confess God?" To confess God is to confess the Incarnation and the Sacraments. What does that do for you when that manifestation actually hits you? Baptism, Eucharist, absolution, sends you out to love. And how does the world then, so then here's the point. How does the world come to know God? You come to know him this way. You've been touched by the sacraments. Although the world starts with the love. So this is churching the church. And then this, this way, is churching the world. The world often starts with your love toward them. And then what does it say? If you love the world, then they know God and the Son whom he sent. That's the incarnation. And then they confess along with you, God is love. Uh Uh-oh. Ongoing. Yes. Because if this happens, yeah, good. So if this happens, confession, incarnation, love, and then for the world, love, incarnation, confession, what does it mean? The circle is complete. And who's been caught up in that? Everybody. So God's love is perfected not only when the circle is complete, but God's love is perfected or complete when everybody is part of his family. Maybe Rob Bell got it right. That also comes up to Yep. Exactly. Yeah, it's, un- it's, it's, it's a love with no basis. Yeah, it's love for love's sake and not love for Christ's sake. Right. Exactly. It means they've got a touch of that, a faint touch of what that's all about. All love, all good, bears some faint touch of Jesus. Right? Even your pagan friends who do great things for people, that bears some faint touch of what it was intended to be in Eden. But it's not full blast. But you have to remember, you're part of the church. There are people in the world who are not. And so they're going to encounter this very differently. That doesn't mean we don't ever bring them to the church. But it means their encounter of Christ may start with love, your love. Yeah, Donna. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And love, but you remember, lo- yes, you're exact- he starts that way. And love, according to the scriptures, is always action, but it's always sort of Christ-motivated action. Never apart from Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That makes sense right there? I think it's it's very interesting how he how he does this whole thing, but I think that's the perfected verb. It's to tell us it's complete because not only does a circle complete, but everybody is then brought up into Christ's family. That's what it's all about. Okay. Question. All right. What verse are we on? Chapter four. We just finished chapter four, Betty. What you're reading ahead? Verse sixteen. Yeah, questions? Oh, do you have a question? I don't even know where you guys are. Or we haven't moved on at all. We haven't moved on. No, I I don't think so. I think wherever you read the text too, um, too intangibly, like here's another example, faith. What is faith? Faith can mean a multitude of things to a multitude of people. Faith can just be, I believe in something, or I've got this warm feeling, or whatever. Wherever you have those sort of intangible words, or what's often been translated as intangible, drop Jesus, in. faith is Jesus, that's Norman Nagel. Love is Jesus. Belief is Jesus, right? Yeah. Um, if you insert the name Jesus, you should be just fine. And you know that's true, because it says here, the key to the Christian faith is the incarnation. That Jesus came as one of us. A joke. Yeah. That's right. And so, good. So that's good for us. Now, if you take that, if you keep going here, now think about the world who is outside. You need to love them in such a way that brings them into this life. So that love would not just sort of be some warm feeling love. What does love look like toward a non-believer? What So you have to know, what do you have to know if you want to love somebody well? What they need, what they want, and how best you can give it to them, right? So think about what you know, non-believers today. How can we love them best? Yeah, you yeah. There's no people don't. Here's the good thing about post-moderns. They can smell something fake ten miles away, which is why something like the emergent church has been so popular because it seems so real, not fake. Fake is everybody put your hands up because you ought to be feeling the spirit. I can remember when I was at. Anybody ever heard of Spring Hill Camp? Spring Hill is a camp in Michigan. We used to go. It's not Lutheran, but we used to go as a Lutheran um, youth group. <laughs> and I can remember sitting there, and in the last night, they'd have this whole night where you could decide for Jesus. Or if you hadn't decided, for if you've already done it, you could do it again. And the guy used to say, put your head down and just raise your hand. Don't look around the room. Well, every kid in there was looking around the room. And, and every kid knew if you didn't have your hand up, You either were a pagan or you didn't really love Jesus enough to dedicate your life to him again. So guess how many hands are up in the room? Every single one. You know what? I knew at age 12 that was fake. But we did it because you felt pressure and all these sorts of things. People today are no different. They can smell something fake like that a mile away. What's not fake is light a candle and say a prayer. What's not fake is you can smell it, right? It's incense. That's what's not fake. So if you want to love people into the church, you've got to love them in a way that's real, and partly what's real is you've got to get to know them. So it is a little impersonal when we just as pastors call people and say, hey, thanks for coming to church. We hope you come back again. That's very nice. People like a phone call, but that's not all that can happen. What else do they want? They want want a real person. They want community. So that's where your love starts to take on action. What, What might that look like? Yeah, invite them to Bible class. Have them over to play with your kids. I mean, this is like, this is just putting all the pieces together. What else might that love look like? That's very important. I have one member who's been here about three years now, and every time I see her, I say hello, and I call her by her first name. And she says, I'm just so surprised you remember my name. I've been to so many churches, been members a long time, and nobody ever knew my name. And that's such an easy thing. I mean, it's not easy to remember everybody's name. Sorry. <laughs> It is. It is. Sorry, I shouldn't have said it was easy. But it's such a, I should say it's this, it's such a small thing. If you remember one or two people's names, that's such a small thing than saying, I need to have 30 people over to my house for dinner. That's what I meant. But yeah, it isn't always easy. Right? But what else? Yeah. Yeah, right. And that's, this gets back to your initial point, which was, it can't always be, our first word can't be a word of fight. Right? Right? We Going to get caught into because let's be honest, the rest of the world is at a fight right now. right? They're at war. And I don't just mean war in Libya. I mean they're at war. You fight with your boss, you fight with your co you fight with everybody. Why would anybody want to join a church where the first word from people's mouth is a word of fight? It just doesn't make sense. And, and don't get me wrong, I think there was a time in our church's history where we had to defend certain things and do certain things, and people were brought into the church by being instructed in sort of the battle cry, you know? But that's not, the, that's not the world today. It may be again, but it's not today. Do you have something to have? Let's not talk about church. Let's just have a cup of coffee. Tell me about your family. Yeah, right. Yep. In fact, there are many times where he doesn't even talk about the truth. I mean, he doesn't even, he embodies it, but he doesn't shove it down people's throats. Yeah, I mean, You want to hear great, this is a great, I I don't think I told you this. I was out, we got some rotted wood in our back deck and so I was out buying wood at at Home Depot and the guy out back, I said, will you cut this for me? I got the measurements. No, we don't do that, he said. This is the guy inside. We don't do that because if we screw it up, we don't want it to be on us. You'll come back. I said, no, I won't come back. I asked the guy out there, maybe he'll do it. So I take the wood out and the guy walked me out says, just be respectful because this guy is a real jerk. I said, okay. He's a real jerk. This young guy cutting wood out there. So I'm very nice, you know, hey, what's going on? Within about five minutes, he told me his whole life story. He'd been fired, he's got a wife, he's got a kid on the way, they don't know how they can pay the bills. They went to the hospital in Joliet, but the hospital in Joliet wasn't a great hospital, so now they're going to a different hospital. He drives in 45 minutes to work every day. He likes being outside because he likes the smell of the wood and he likes to be alone. That's in like eight minutes. Now here's the thing. He has no idea I was a pastor, but I completely spiritually analyzed the guy. I can tell you what he wants. He can't pay the bills. He feels nervous about his own family. He's afraid his wife's going to leave him because he can't put food on the table and he's got another kid on the way and he doesn't know he's going to survive. He feels lonely. He feels unloved. He's scared, right? That's just, that's the way we need to work. Not, if I would have said to the guy, come to my church, he would have said, I'm not cutting your wood, (laughs) right? But that's how, that's what this is all about. That's love. Because he doesn't talk to anybody out there. Okay? Okay. I just said, hey, I love you. I've got to come back and buy more wood. We'll talk again when I see you. I just left it at that. He had no idea. But he'll go home and think, somebody actually took the time to talk to me today. I had a nice conversation. I mean, I'm not that enjoyable to talk to, but I can talk to the guy cutting the wood. It was fun. I don't know anything about it. I said, what do you? Do? how does this all work? And 10 or 15 minutes, and that was it. And he wasn't not working. He was working the whole time. But it was just, it was great. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you got to all they do is just, you know, shove this stuff at him and say, we cut it, cut it, cut it. And he, he's out there with a saw all day by himself. Yeah, right. So that's what he's talking about. That's love. That's love. And then it gets to the point of, come to church with me. But that might be 15 conversations. I might have to go back and buy more wood, you know? I'm thinking about replacing my whole deck one board at a time. Okay? So. Verse 17. What time is it? We're all, oh, good. We're almost done. So, verse 17. Let's let's at least read to the end, and we can come back to it next week. By this is love. By this is love perfected within us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So basically, your love prepares you for Judgment Day. The only way you would ever fear that is if you're afraid the Lord's going to smite you on Judgment Day. How do you know he's not going to smite you? Because you love. See how this works? This is the whole point I often say to people when they say, I'm so scared about this. What I say is, man, go out and play golf or go out and work at the soup kitchen or go out and do this. The basic point is, if you're busy, hopefully you're not thinking about all the stuff you can be scared of. My wife's going to leave me. I'm not doing well. My kids are upset. Go out and do something. We love because he first loved us. Christ does the verbs. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. <laughs> for he does not love his brother whom he, whom he has seen. I'm sorry. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen. Cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's always easier to love somebody who you can see. You can't see Jesus right now in the same way you could, you know, 2,000 years ago. But there's no possible way you can say, I love somebody who's unseen if you don't love people who are seen. Okay? Any questions? All right. We'll probably go back to those few, or maybe Pastor Bruzik will. I don't know who will be there. But uh, next week, keep coming, um, and we'll have some fun. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation